Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gauthier. All right, we're good. Welcome to this week's episode of The Flow Line. I'm here in Casa del Strickland with my lovely co-host, Matt Offenbacher, and a second-time guest on the show, the AES VP, Mr. James Strickland. Gentlemen, how are we doing today? Can't complain. Doing good, man. Yeah, well, appreciate the hospitality here, James, and uh, we had a great lunch and a good strategy session, and we figured, hey, why not get on the microphone and record another episode of The Flow Line? So um, for those of you who didn't get to listen to uh, James talk about his experience and his story, uh, I don't remember exactly which episode it was, but I encourage you to go back and listen to it. It's, it's, it's a great story, and James certainly brings a lot of value to our team and uh, has helped steer the ship in and, and certainly the right direction. Um, and then not too long ago, Matt and I, we did a, a land DWAP. And uh, for the techies out there, it's not drill well on paper. It's actually drill well on podcast. So we, we came up with that term and, and we thought it was pretty cool. So we did one for land. Um, and actually, Matt, I forgot to tell you, but it was the highest grossing downloaded episode. Uh, so for us, I think it made sense to do one for offshore and invite James to help us out. Because uh, James, why don't you just briefly, uh, and you don't have to give the whole story, but with regards to offshore, you spent some time offshore. So what was that like for you? And, and tell us your experience uh, you know, during that time. Yeah, I was fortunate enough at the beginning of my career. Um, actually, I was hired out of the kind of the Houston land division. And uh, shortly after getting out of mud school, <clears throat> we went through a little bit of a recession. So they uh, transferred me over to the New Orleans division. And uh, it was the deep water division for one of the major mud companies. And uh, they had just started a uh, compliance program where basically you make sure that what you discharge falls within the EPA regulations. So uh, I did that for a couple years, working a 14 and 14 schedule, uh, then got moved into mud engineer. And then uh, after several years, I got an office position as a, what we call a project engineer watching over a deep water project. So it, all in all, it was from about 2002 till 2011. Wow. That's quite a bit. I mean, it, it's certainly back then I find a lot of hands that have, you know, a lot of good experience typically have at least, you know, five to 10 years of offshore experience. And, and we've been, you know, granted a lot of their experience on land, which is nice. Uh, actually one of you know my customers, I've got an offshore hand who's been out in one of our customers and um, his attention to detail and logistics and paperwork is, is, is on point. And not to say that land folks don't have that, but you know, for my experience, and it's a lot less than what you had just a couple of years of being on a jackup and then inland barge. Um, yeah, you have a lot of time to, to get, make sure everything's right. And you, you know, you got, you know, whether it's doing a cement job, Matt, you talked about it earlier, every four or five days, or you just, you have time to, to kind of dial everything in. But, uh, yeah, it's certainly that experience, I think adds a lot of value to, to them coming back onto land. Matt, you also have experience offshore. Why don't you share that with the group? Yeah. So I think one of the, one of the things with, with my experience was I was usually going out as either a technical expert for a specific application. And usually it was in the reservoir which meant that I didn't see a lot of the challenges that we're going to talk about in, in depth. 
but I would go out and, and uh, we do some of these jobs for uh, some open hole completions, as we called them. Um, and uh, a lot of it was uh, a, lot, a little bit overseas, but most of it in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and, you know, as far as, as my experience goes, one of the things that I, I think I'm most interested from you guys is uh, I was always trying to make nice with the rig crew, but since I was going from rig to rig, it was never the same one. Like I had to make friends everywhere I went, but I think you guys worked on rigs for long enough that, you know, you got to know the, the drilling teams and got to know your Derrick hand pretty well and that sort of thing. And, um, that dynamic was always very interesting to me offshore just because you, it's not just the Derrick hand, but it's, you might have a pit hand and a shaker hand and you, you got a lot of other roles that you might not be used to on land. Uh, to help you out, but if they can help you out, it means you also need to be very nice to them. Yeah. Um, no, so. just to to supplement on what you're saying there, it's funny because, you know, offshore, at least the experience that I had, you had your little mud lab on top of the, the deck or the catwalk. And, um, you know, I couldn't figure out why everyone wanted to come and talk about mud. Well, you know, eventually I've come to realize that they were just trying to hide. And one time I was out running around the rig doing things. And I came back in the, and the solids control hand was sleeping in my mud lab. And I woke him up pretty rudely, but uh, he didn't last too long out there. But yeah, it, it, it was funny because they're, they're certainly trying to make friends with, with you and, and then vice versa. I mean, um, you know, it's building those strategic relationships on a rig helps everybody. But, but James, what would you say, um, you know, being out there, what, what was your favorite experience or, or what did you like the most about being offshore? You know, I, it, Matt kind of touched on it there is that you get to really be part of a team and you get to know the guys that got you you help the guys out they'll help you out you know out there you got to weigh the mud going in and out every 15 minutes mm -hmm. so the the pit hand or the shaker hand is up there you hear you hear them call it out on the well, i don't know how they, they used to be on the guidetronics where it'd be you know mud weight coming in 13.5 mud weight going out 13.6 or whatever so you know they'd come to the hey james i gotta go make a sandwich go get a cup of coffee can you weigh the mud for me you know and then but the same way you had something that you need to take care of then they'd help you out and you know and, and also another great thing was just that every single well was it was a different challenge mm. um you know a lot of what we do on land is about repeatability and perfecting the same thing over and over and over whereas offshore i mean you could be on a 60 day 90 day 120 day well that just has you know high probability for losses or you know pressure or you know you might lose two thousand barrels of mud while you're running casing it's just all sorts of different um challenges that's kind of what you know it was, it was fun out there yeah no kidding well the family dynamic is certainly something that everyone can identify with who's been offshore um so let's get into more of the technical side of it uh and, and Matt, you you know, feel free to answer this or James, but um, how would you define the term deep water? Because you hear offshore, deep water, you know, the shelf. Um, how would you describe deep water? I mean, the interesting thing is this number keeps getting bigger and bigger as far as what you consider a really uh, deep water depth. Uh, so, you know, the, the functional definition keeps changing, but um, sometimes it's sort of how the rig addresses it, right? So up to about 400 feet. You can drill with what's called a jackup, where a jackup, it has these legs, but they're cantilevered up, so you can float it out to wherever you want it to go, and then you can cantilever legs down, and it'll actually stand up off the, the uh, ocean floor, and you lift it up above the water, and you drill from that, um, and you're, you're 
BOPs are are above the water. It's it's a bit more straightforward. So we call that you know shelf work. Pretty pretty straightforward. Um, but once you get deeper and you can't actually um, you you can't actually stand up off the ocean floor for lack of a better description. Um, you start looking into other rig types that can float over location and um, you know like a a semi submersible or a, a drill ship are are the most common and. A lot of folks would start saying at 1,500 feet you're getting into deep water. I think I think in today's technology you sort of consider that still amateur territory. I think you know 5,000 feet and 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 beyond. And uh, you know there I think the record right now is about 11,000 feet of water, but some of the rigs are rated to 12,000. And and so you're seeing you know 10,000 feet of water is pretty deep. I think I think fairly consistently that's that's probably, you know, cutting edge, but, but they're even pushing past that these days. Um, and I guess one thing I want to qualify is lots of folks get these mixed up. And, and so I'd clarify, so there's things called mobile offshore drilling units, which means I can move the drilling package to wherever I want to go. And so that would be a drill ship or a semi-submersible. It goes, you know, it's suspended over the location, either through anchors or basically, um, what's called dynamic positioning, which is satellites and little thrusters to keep it in place. Um, and then, uh, you know, every, everything sub C as far as the wellhead and, and all that. Um, but in some cases, in, in a lot of cases, you may actually set a platform. If you've got a really pro- prolific area, they may set a platform that actually has a drilling package on it, as they call it. So there might be production facilities or might be some other things, but you can drill from the platform. The platform is a fixed installation. They tend to not move as much, which is great if you get seasick. Um, other, other nice things, but, uh, so it's it's sort of two different categories where you know you could have a platform that's anchored in place and it's been there for years and you know people kind of know those rigs pretty well because people have been in and out of them um, and they know what drilling in that area is like. But then you get on a drill ship and you could drill three different wells in three different places before it ever goes back to shore, and every well could be completely different, like James is describing. Um, so I, I think that's one thing to kind of keep in mind. But the definition of deep water, I feel like, as extremes continue to go and the more shallow stuff gets easier and easier, you start finding yourself as, you know, what is deep water? Is it the really difficult stuff or, you know, 1,500 feet sounds deep to me, but uh, from a drilling perspective, it's not all that challenging anymore. Sure, sure. Well, uh, let's. you mentioned challenges um, for either one of you. I mean, just off the top of your head, what are some of the challenges that we may face from the drilling fluids perspective or even just a drilling perspective with being so deep offshore? I mean, there's several factors, but do any come to mind? I think one of the biggest things with offshore is the logistics because typically you are anywhere from 24 to 48 hours away from resupply. Typically most of these, you know, deep water rigs they have a supply boat that's dedicated to them and it'll kind of cruise around the rig and you know it'll have supplies uh casing drill pipe mud products whatever the the rig needs but if you need to get more supplies then it's got to go all the way back town and come all the way back out so Mm -hmm. you have to plan your your business so that you know you can get through a 48 hour turnaround yeah. So logistics is uh, one of the biggest issues uh, as far as knowing what to order, how much to order, when to order it. Because mm-hmm. you are limited on there. It's not like you, it's not on land. Like you've got a lease that you could just dump a bunch of product off of. You're limited by deck space and boat space. So 
Yeah, that's certainly something that, you know, when it comes to pre-planning, uh, you really have to have your ducks in a row and, and then even plan for unexpected events because you never know. So looking at offset wells and really just planning your business is certainly something important. Um, Matt, you mentioned some uh, a few things earlier. Why don't you go ahead and describe some of the challenges that, that you're you know well aware of? I think the the one thing that sort of sets the stage for a lot of everything else is just the narrow fracture gradient that you face. And by that, if you think about it, overburden or the dirt on top of the rock has a certain weight to it. Except for in 10,000 feet of water, instead of dirt, I have water, which is lighter than that dirt that compresses itself. And so you're drilling into fairly young formations that aren't very strong and uh, you know, when you drill through them, it's likely that you don't have a lot of window between what your mud weight is and what for what circulating pressure that formation can handle. And so, you know, there's a lot of different things that you you have to do to minimize the risk of unexpected losses and that sort of thing. Um, but even on the engineering side, it could be that you run extra casing strings. And normally, when you run extra casing strings, it means you start with much larger hole size. Um, so you're drilling larger hole size, um, the logistics side of things, you're doing a lot more cement jobs, you're managing fluid volumes. Um, and you know, that risk of losses we've done, uh, you know, low ECD muds, uh, you know, clay free, low clay, whatever you want to call them. Um, and the whole premise behind that is I have this, I circulate into this hot well, the mud heats up, and then it's got to go up an annulus that could be 10,000 feet of cold water that's 35 degrees Fahrenheit until I get to surface. And so it gets really, really thick. And then I have all these challenges with pump pressures. My ECD goes way up. I increase the risk of losses. So, um, you know, that sort of sets the stage for a number of the fluid challenges is just that narrow fracture gradient. Um, you know, logistics, I'll add on to James is like getting fights in a, over what we can keep in the sack room. Um, you know, getting access to the forklift to get the product that you need from the sack room. Um, it, you know, even even on the deck when we'd have pallet boxes laid out, um, trying to figure out what's sitting on a boat, trying to figure out what's actually on the rig, and then being able to tell the crane operator go three pallet boxes over and four to the left, and I need that one, and I need you to drop that down to the deck where the sack room is, and then we can offload it with a forklift and put it in the sack room or start cutting sacks, and uh, you know, it's there's just a lot of thinking ahead um, where you say what happens next um, where you're handling those things. And, and like the forgiving part is you're in deep water in particular, you're dealing with huge volumes. I mean, James, what was a typical circulating volume you had? Oh, you'd have just, just in the riser alone before you put anything in the holes, about 2000 barrels. And so, that's an average, you know, mud system on land is anywhere from, you know, 1,500 to 2,500 barrels. So <laughs> that's, you know, a fraction of what you see offshore. So you said 2,000 barrels there. And then what are you seeing for the rest? You so know? then between what you got in the hole, what you got in your uh, active system on surface, 10,000 barrels? Yeah. I mean, it, it, so it's this cra- these crazy volumes. And part of it is even managing, if you change mud weights, you, you probably swap out systems. So you're sending heavy mud back or lighter mud, you know, bringing on light mud handling that and and the pit systems in in some of these rigs you might have uh, so in a semi-submersible it's got these pontoons under the waterline well there are huge tanks down there where you could store mud and so you know a lot of the rigs i worked on they had one pit that was called the transfer pit and you transfer any mud you wanted to send what we call downstairs through that pit to get it to one of the one of the tanks down there and uh, so you had to think about all, all those kinds of things is 
who actually designed this this pit layout, which is which is common in most scenarios, but there there's just a, a number of things you have to think through. Um, and I'll admit I wasn't very good at it, but um, you know th- there was just a lot you had to map out, and it goes back to that teamwork of asking your you know your Derrickan like how did we how did we do this last time? And let me tell you, one of the most uncomfortable things that you can do in life is to go to a pontoon pit. You get into a elevator about the size of a refrigerator and it's all rickety and just you know it's something off a movie it just doesn't look very safe it's terrifying you call the bridge and you let them know hey this is james i'm getting ready to go downstairs you know into the pontoon room they say okay and then the elevator proceeds to just shake its way down and then you get out (laughs) knowing that you're underwater at this point and you call them and you let you know that, you know, I made it that down. You made it. And they say, okay, call me when you come back up. Oh uh, yeah. I mean, and it's, it's like, you're getting into a cylinder that is basically just large enough for you. You, you close this thing in and it's moving really slow. So you have no sense of how deep you are or when it's going to stop. And I, I mean, it's just, I look forward to that till the least. And a lot of times it would be, you know, they'd, I need to go check the pits because they had a pit cleaning crew down there and you need to, you know, okay that everything was good or what, you know, whatever. But it was just so creepy down there. Um, yeah. I can imagine. Is it like, is it open to atmosphere or is it you're enclosed for like completely enclosed? I mean, you're, you're underwater, right? So well, it's, yeah, it's not atmosphere. Uh, like, like more, can you see the pits or anything? Or like when you close it, are you in this like tiny little chamber? So oh, it's, no, it's, it's fairly, it's, those, those, they're big. Those pontoons are huge. It's like but the boat. elevator itself yeah. is. No, no, the, yeah, the right. elevator is probably the size of a chair. Like yeah. in, in t- I mean, it's so if you were claustrophobic, you'd be in a serious bind. Yes, and I am. Okay, <laughs> uh, it, was, it was horrible. Um, uh, yeah, I, uh, yeah. So that is one uh, unfortunate thing. But usually, yeah. uh, I remember going down there, and, and I had a pontoon hand. I, I was like Charlie, couldn't hear anything. And, you know, I always had kind of one foot towards like, okay, I want to go back up. I want to go back up. But I had to go walk all the way down to him because I couldn't shout. Like, we couldn't communicate unless you were basically like six inches apart because you couldn't hear. Right. And, like, we'd figure out whatever. And the whole time I'm, like, backpedaling. Like, I want to go back up. I want to go back up. Um, but, yeah, that's that's definitely one of the horror stories is going down in the pontoons. Uh, <laughs> I never liked that. And yeah. James, sounds like you felt the same. Yeah, well, it's... Um, I never got to experience anything like that on a Jacka, but, uh, I mean, to get onto those normally, so going back to like actually just getting onto the rig, typically deep water, your helicopter, right? You're not using on a work boat to get out there or are you sometimes? Typically you're not, I know sometimes that the weather's really bad, then they might send you home on a, on a work boat, Oof. but it's very rare that workers actually come out on work boats. Right. Well, that's, I think, one of the other challenges is just, you know, the extreme environment and, and weather. I mean, um, again, on the shallower stuff, weather tends to play a big part on things, um, boats getting out there, but boats are still used to get, you know, product and different materials out to the rig. So, I mean, can you guys talk a little bit about the weather conditions and how that might affect, you know, whether it's drilling fluid operations or just the operations in itself? Tell us about hurricane evacuations and loop currents, James. Yeah, so that that's a, another big challenge, just Mother Nature itself. Um, you know, especially Gulf of Mexico hurricane season. Um, you always you're always watching the weather forecast because 
if one of these uh, storms can pop up, you definitely don't want to get, you don't want to ride it out on a rig, which I know probably some of us have been stuck out there. I, I was, I was never out there during an actual hurricane, but some of the, uh, some of the rig hands, you know, they, that are on these drill ships, they'll actually, they'll pull riser and they'll try to outrun the, the hurricane, which I know that doesn't sound very fun. Uh, but yeah, so you, you always got to look out for, for hurricane season, the obvious one, but there's a, there's another phenomena out there in the Gulf of Mexico, which is called loop currents. And these, uh, these currents that, uh, I don't know what a certain month that they that they generally come around. I don't even remember. There, yeah, there seems to be a season for them. You know, when it's warmer, yeah. I guess. But but they'll they'll be so strong that, uh, like Matt was saying earlier, these these rigs are held in place by either by anchors or by dynamic positioning. <clears throat> and these currents are so strong, they'll actually move the rig so far that the riser is has potential to disconnect. So if the loop currents get too strong, then what they'll do is they'll just pull the riser. We'll wait, sit there and wait for, for the loop currents to go away. And you don't know how long, I mean, you can sit for a while. Like, are we talking hours or days or days, weeks? Weeks. I mean, oh, yeah. Huh. Um, so then you're just on non-productive time due to mother nature. Yeah. Wait for some, wait for it to go away. No kidding. Crazy. Yeah. Um, Let's talk a little bit about some of the downhole challenges. Um, you know, we've got obviously the temperature and thermal gradient. Matt, why don't you touch a little bit on that? Because that's something we don't quite experience uh, near extreme on land as we do offshore. Yeah, I mean, you know, what's interesting is, and, and James, you can probably speak to, to some of this too, is, is the thermal gradient hits you a few different ways. I mean, one, a lot of these wells can be fairly extreme environments. Even, I mean, it's not just that they're in deep water. It's that your bottom hole temperatures can be quite hot in, in a lot of these formations. Um, you know, I've, I've been involved in some projects, you know, pushing 400 plus degrees Fahrenheit. It's true HPHT territory. Um, and I think not only between that extreme, my experience too is in the most challenging wells, they always want to do a ton of logging. Um, just so they can induce bayright sag is how it felt. Uh, but but there's there are some things where you know you're you're always thinking about time and moving ahead and push push push. And then there will be these operational activities where you know you're circulating at low rates and and doing runs and um, that temperature. It's not even necessarily the, the swing, but it's just high static temperatures for a while are likely to induce sag and create a, you know other problems there. Um, and then you talk about even breaking circulation to trip in, um, you know, trying to homogenize a whole fluid system when part of it's really hot and part of it's really cold after long static periods, uh, you know, and the thermal effects, uh, you know, with trip margins, right? So you have some of your mud wants to cool and contract and you have some of it that wants to expand, uh, and trying to figure out, okay, well, my, my equivalent circulating density was this. Uh, what mud weight do I need to apply the same uh, equivalent density on the formation right now so that I can come out of the hole without having to flow or having other issues? Um, and so there's, you rely really heavily on your hydraulics and your temperature, you know, simulations. Uh, and, and that's where, as James, you were pointing out, you know, you do a ton of planning for these wells. Uh, you're running through a million scenarios. So it might take six months to plan one of these wells you know in the unconventional game we study some offsets and, and typically if we've drilled anywhere near the area i can get you a mud program the same day you know um 
but there's lots of meetings, lots of what ifs, discussions. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I would say those are the things that jump to mind. Would you have anything to add, James? Yeah, and you know, talking with these uh, narrow frat gradients as well, you, you, you're going to some of the you're going to run tapered strings. You're going to run hydraulics on. Okay, what if I run five inch and in, you know open hole, and then when you get to such and such liner, you swap over to you know whatever size, and and then you know they'll change the parameters again, and so you'll just run hydraulics over and over and over trying to optimize. Um, what you think you're going to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, I mean, liner and tieback too was always an interesting one to me where, so you run a liner and then they actually run a tieback, which is basically, it's like running the casing in two sections. So you run the liner, you cement it in place, you, you test it, and then you run an extra set of pipe that you set on top of that. So you have the same size annulus going all the way up. Mm. Um, and, uh, so that requires another cement job and all that good stuff. And it also adds an extra seal to, you know, offer more assurance that you have integrity. Um, but that was something I, I experienced in the Gulf a, a few times. And it was kind of like, wait, we got to do another cement job? Like, I was kind of ready to get back to work. Yeah. So, uh, you, you know, the, the, those those sort of techniques, as James points out, with cementing become become very challenging and, and very important. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Uh, let's talk a little bit more um, with regarding the mud uh, in the circulating system in itself. There's a few other components and pumps that we need to be aware of uh, that are utilized on deep water jobs compared to land. Um, you know, I mean, we already talked about how large the volume is. We talked about being, you know, at potentially, you know, five to 10,000 feet of water. Um, so some might be thinking, well, how do you get, you know, mud from the hole up through the water? So can either one of you kind of walk through where the mud starts in the pit and then walk us through the series of different equipment, just on a, like a very macro level, um, how it makes its way back to surface? Yeah. So first of all, what connects the seafloor to the rig is what we call the riser. And the riser is, oh, I think that 21 inch OD, 19 and a half inch ID. Um, and you're, you're going to connect it to the BOP stack on the seafloor. So, and within the riser, they have several smaller lines, which kind of go down the side of the riser, which you have a booster line and a... Um, Choke and a kill? Yes. So three different lines. Uh, the boost line, typically when you're circulating, since you have you know, smaller hole size below you, mm -hmm. when you have all these cuttings get up to a 19 and a half inch ID riser, then hole cleaning becomes an issue, right? So they can kick in the boost pump, which is basically another pump that comes in at the bottom of the riser and helps move all your cuttings up the hole or up to the surface. Right. And that's, they're pumping just additional mud. Yes. So from the active and just being able to push, so you get more annular velocity to carry everything up. Huh, that makes sense. And so that's coming, obviously, you know, from downhole coming up. Um, what about surface equipment? Is there anything different on, on the surface side of it with regards to, I mean, the mud pumps, just from my experience on a jackup, were way bigger. Um, you're pumping way more volume. Um, but is there anything else that, that deep water has that maybe land wouldn't? I think it's just grander in size, you know, like, whereas, say, on land, you're doing good if you got three shakers offshore you're probably going to have eight shakers right um you know bigger pumps more pumps because you got to have i think 
four pumps, two down hole, and then one on the boost. So, uh, yeah, I mean, and I don't know, like, I've, this is shows a little bit of my ignorance, but, um, you know, the technology always seemed to be pretty good offshore where you'd be looking at uh, 6,000, 7,500 PSI pumps, but, um, you know, they, they could all very reliably downlink as well. Like, um, you know, you could pulse off of them and, um, you know, send communications down hold, uh, at, at really good clean rates. Um, someone will slap me around for that's a total butchering of the description, but I think you, you know what I'm talking about. Um, uh, so there was just a, at least it started out and granted the land has come a long way as we've gotten up to those 5,000 PSI pumps, but a lot more uh, precision control is what I'm going at. Um, but, uh, yeah, large volumes, more pressure. Anything else? Yeah. No, it's, I mean, ultimately all we got to do is pump mud from the pits down out through the bit. And so it's just, you need a more, more pump and, and more output for it. So, uh, and then getting it back to surface, uh, something else that came to mind was, you know, there's obviously strict environmental guidelines offshore and from the drilling fluid side of things, uh, you know, again, my experience, we did like stuff like static sheen when we were drilling with any fluid. There were all, there were always like little tests that we had to do for OSHA at the time. I don't know what it's called now, but, um, or I think it was OSHA, but are there other tests as a mud engineer that we would do offshore that we normally wouldn't do on land for environmental compliance stuff? Yeah. For your, for your cuttings discharge, you, uh, basically have to, in order to be able to discharge cuttings, you have to keep your oil on cuttings below a certain level Mm -hmm. so what you do is you uh and there's a certain procedure that's mandated by the epa where you basically collect a sample of cuttings every 500 feet you burn a retort on it and then you take different measurements from that retort to determine what the actual oil on cuttings is and uh for the certain base oil i think for the internal olefin I want to say the the limit was like 6.9% oil on cuttings. Mm, Okay. So certainly things to think about just, you know, on top of the already a busy job that we have. Yeah. And you're going to use a a synthetic oil, uh, IO 1618 in the Gulf of Mexico. Like honestly, once you, you do it in enough different locations, you know, what's available and what's approved, which is usually why it's available. Um, but IO 16, almost everything is benchmarked to that. The chemicals have to pass past what's called lc50 and and some other testing directly associated with that um you may have a cuttings dryer to make sure that the cuttings have the minimal amount of oil in fact you you will uh and i guess i mean the other thing uh james uh, you know a compliance hand was a was always considered like a step up into becoming a mud engineer but as far as how important it was to get that documentation right um, did you ever have to deal with like the coast guard boarding the rig or, uh, you know, any of the, any of those types of inspections? No, you know, we, <clears throat> we never, none of the rigs I was on, we ever actually got a uh, coast guard inspection or, I mean, obviously back in the day it was MMS, uh, That's right. but they, uh, even the MMS, they really didn't mess with the compliance engineers that much. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, let's get into an actual well, you know, starting at the beginning, and we, we don't have to get into crazy details. I know we're pushing half an hour, but the, but the series of events 
on land are very similar to offshore. There's obviously some differences, but let's talk about spud. Um, so you get on, you know, we've got the well positioned, you've got everything in place. Um, ultimately, what's the first thing that happens? You talked about riser. So do they essentially use that or can you talk about like how you actually even spud a well on deep water? Yeah. So your, your first couple of intervals, you're going to do riserless, which means all the returns are going to the seafloor. And the, the very first section you're going to do is, is what you call jetting in where you actually have a, you have your casing and you have an inner string, which means you have your uh, drill pipe that goes through the casing and there's a bit on the bottom and you actually just jet in with seawater to whatever depth your, your casing is set at. And then at that point you release your inner string, you pull your inner string out of the hole and the, uh, the casing will actually soak and you don't, you don't do a cement job or anything. The, the uh, formation is so soft that it just kind of soaks around it. You know, it's funny. It's kind of, even if you're on a beach and you dig deep enough and you stick your hand in there and you let all the sand kind of come in on you, it's kind of the same idea. And then it creates almost like a suction and you have to yank it. I get to imagine that pressure with the sea floor, everything kind of sucking in on you. Um, it, it, it provides a pretty good enough integrity that you don't need the cement job, which is pretty neat. That's something that I don't think a lot of people know about. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's how you get started. And then, um, you know, so the, the, and these are all, because you're taking returns to surface, these are all your, you, you know, you start with seawater and, and then you'll go to your riseless section. So you actually drill and, and you'll, you'll drill with, uh, with water-based mud. Um, and we call usually, you know, pad mud or what we call pump and dump. Uh, but it, it tends to be large volumes because you're not taking returns, big hole size. Uh, James, why don't you tell us a little bit about those, you know, one or two riseless intervals. <clears throat> Yeah, so basically what you do is you order out um, what we call DKD mud. Uh, typically, it's 16-pound water-based mud. You can have salt-saturated, super salt-saturated, S3, S4. It's just different levels of how saturated you want this volume to be. And why is that important? Like, what's the, like why would you need something like that? A lot of the sat saturation is inhibition, right? Okay. So, and especially if you're doing... Um, one of those on the fly mixers, right? So you're cutting it all with seawater as you circulate. So it may be super saturated, but you're mixing half and half, you know, 8.4 seawater with 16 pound mud to get your equivalent mud weight to drill that interval. Gotcha. And you, you literally have basically a piece of pipe that you're pumping from here and here, they go together, they go down hole. Um, and that maximizes your volume, right? So I could send out how many yeah. thousand barrels of that mud and I get double the, yeah. double the life out of it you, you would calculate so basically you when you calculate how long it's going to take you to drill this section right mm-hmm. you know you're going to be pumping 1200 gpms so say it's going to take 24 hours to drill however many feet so you can calculate that i'm pumping 1200 gallons per minute so many barrels per minute so now i know i have to have so many barrels of 16 pound uh, pad mud which will turn into so many barrels of 10 pound uh, mud that goes down hole. So it's really not unusual in some of these, uh, deep water jobs to order 50 to a hundred thousand barrels of, uh, <laughs> pad mud. Wow. That's crazy. And so, and, and if you do either one, of you remember or have an idea of how deep that gets you. 
roughly do you remember it all golly i know i'm i'm, I'm brushing off yeah. and my, maybe my my curiosity is is uh we got a lot of the co- best of us. we got a lot of cobwebs on some of these that, that's fine so and, and i mean that's it's kind of irrelevant so you get that and then you that's riserless so yeah. is that considered your surface interval or we haven't even got there yet so I mean, I, I think the hard part is when you think in land, you're like surface intermediate production. Yeah, <laughs> and here you might be talking about seven or eight casing strings, and so it's like sure. third intermediate. You know, gotcha. um, and, and so I, I think you. For me, I almost consider jetting in as like a conductor. Uh, you know, like driving a conductor, right? Where you hammer it in, and then your first real drilling interval is when you are rotating the bit mm-hmm. and cement in place. So the first riserless section I usually consider surface, but that's my terminology and okay. you know, yeah, yeah. different train of thought for sure. So what kind of so after those uh intervals um you know, what happens after that and and do we change systems at that point or does it depend? Yeah, typically after you run your say let's go two uh riserless sections then you run your BOP stack, and then or you'll run your riser with your BOP stack on it. You test BOPs, and then you can displace to most likely synthetic base mud, and you'll drill the rest of it with synthetic. Okay. And then for like once you drill your sections again, depending on the, you know the total depth and what formations you're targeting, you may have different mud systems for different intervals, setting different types of casing or different at different depths. Um, you know, are the cement jobs relatively similar to land or are they quite a bit different? I mean, obviously you're cementing casing in place, but from a mud standpoint, was there much difference or is it pretty much the same? I'd say it's, it's pretty similar. Um, but for some reason, I guess just because of the frat gratings and the, the, the weight of the, the cement that it seemed like we always lost a lot of mud on cement jobs. I can't say that 100%, but you were highly likely to use or lose a significant amount of mud. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I think we took more time remediating on critical sections to, to be honest with you, you know, they were willing to take the time to bond log and, and do some other things and say, okay, we're going to, um, we're going to, you know, perf and perforate this casing and squeeze some cement in there. Um, and, and I think they're a lot more willing to try more sophisticated cementing techniques if they need to like nitrogen, nitrified, you know, low, low density cements, that sort of thing. Um, and I think on the mud side of things for me, it got me running hydraulics a lot more, even trying to simulate, even though it was a mud program, trying to simulate the cement job itself to figure out when we went on losses and what our ECD limit really was to see if we could lower that next time. Um, but, uh, I I think the, you know, the biggest thing for me on cement jobs was there were so many of them. Um, and, and then I think on the hole cleaning side, like you know, the hard part is it's, it's not that hard to clean vertical hole necessarily, but, um, you know, we're especially some of these low ECD or flat rheology muds, um, you know, talking about suspension and that sort of thing, when you are building angle in 17 and a half inch hole and doing things you just probably wouldn't do on land, uh, you know, those things became a more of a challenge. You would drill a lot more like S curve type wells where, you know, you've got two vertical section, you know, vertical and then like a deviated building and then you dip down again and you know more complex trajectories to follow um and so i i think it it's just in a in a land well or a, even a shelf well you might have one section or two sections like that and in, in 
deep water just feels like it's it's more of a fight the whole way <laughs> right I, I guess that's i don't know james what's your take yeah and i think that you know i remember some of these um projects that you're doing that you know a, a geologist sees you know a little blip over here on some of some of their uh logs or whatnot so they they like well i'd really like to get over to this section right here and check it out so some of these well trajectories you're you're making these big s curves or fish hooks or whatever so you can actually go and check out you know different formations or different areas does uh you know do do things like i mean obviously we talked about hole cleaning but what are there any other challenges like key challenges due to these well trajectories um high temperatures i mean are there any other things that come to mind with with what we do you know more from a mud design perspective I mean, I think loss circulation plays a whole ro- role, a huge role, and and the the willingness to utilize technology to solve a problem. Um, remember, here rig time is the cost. Uh, you know, I'm sure they're much cheaper now, but you know, when a rig when a rig spread was a million bucks a day, your mud bill was a was a rounding error, and so you know, you'd have people screaming at you that it's thousands of dollars a minute. What are you doing? Why are we waiting on you? And so. You know, the idea that, hey, I could eliminate losses if we stop and do a wellbore strengthening treatment or, um, you know, maybe we should try this and it, it'll save us 12 hours. All of a sudden, you know, you, you had a lot more willingness to, to push it um, and you had a lot of support to make it happen. So I think even, um, you know, scaling up, there's more solutions are in the realm of possibility as far as your options. We talk about loss circulation. There are certain fluid loss control pills that are, you know, um, forty thousand dollars a treatment. Uh, some of these squeezes uh, that are really expensive, um, and they're willing to try them because they worked in a nearby well or what have you. And, and it's not much. You're not sheepishly coming up with a recommendation. You're saying, "Hey, look, I think it's going to work. Same rock from nearby." And um, so I think, I think there, you know, that element. Is, is where the script flips for me is to anytime you can show up with technology and a solution that's going to save time, everybody's ready to do the math and, and figure out what that is in dollars. Where I think, you know, on a land rig, you know, it's nice to save three hours, but there's a lot of folks who'll say, well, I mean, we can't even tell if that was actually you or some other things we did. Um, so it, it, it was just a, I, I don't know, certainly a willingness to try all those things and make sure they succeed. Yeah. Which, um, you know, and then, you know, us on land, once sort of offshore slowed down, we saw a lot of that technology somehow magically trickle into land. Yes. Some <laughs> of it necessary, some of it unnecessary, but it all got there. <laughs> right. If you've been a listener for a while now, you probably get the, you know, reading between the lines. But um, so assume we make it to TD, which we always hope we do. Um, you know, we obviously come out, run, you know, production string or liner, um, what does, uh, what does that look like? And, and closing out a well and moving off location or, you know, off the water, uh, what, what does that look like? I mean, on land, it's fairly simple. Um, but when does our job done and is that any different from land to what we do offshore or deep water? You know, it depends what type of completion they're going to do. If say you're on a, uh, one of these platform rigs, then typically you go and you complete these, uh, wells immediately. So, you might do a direct displacement to a completion fluid where at this point you got to line up all the surfactant and solvent pills and displacement, uh, spacers. And it could be a, 
doing the displacement to completion fluid can be just as critical as anything else in the job. So um, if you're going straight into completions and you do a direct displacement, it's a fairly technical ordeal and it's, it's a pretty uh, stressful on the people on the pits trying to keep up with all the different moving parts. Yeah. And I, and I mean, line that up with some of the bigger rigs have actually separate circulating systems, one for completion fluids, one for mud. And they're totally, totally separate, which is fantastic because there's no time to clean pits and all that. But think about a rig where you do have these large volumes. And particularly after uh, the Macondo incident, you know, one thing we would do to manage pits is we would, we'd call this place on the fly where we would, we would try, we would be keeping track of our pit volumes, but we would actually, as we were taking mud out of the well, we would be transferring to a boat so that we would have enough dirty pits to keep our completion fluid that we were pumping into the well. Uh, you know, to have clean pits for that and dirty pits to receive the mud. And then we, uh, but we might not have enough volume. And so we transferred the boat. Well, there's a lot of leeriness about being aware of your volumes after that and saying, look, no, you can't transfer on the fly. You've got to take it all into a pit where you can see how much is there right then. And then you can transfer it out. And so then it became, you know, way more pit limited on these displacements um, but, uh, you know, sometimes, uh, and depending on if it's exploration or if there's other things that need to happen, they may just suspend the well. So they might leave mud in the hole. Um, sometimes they'll displace to a clear fluid, um, with some corrosion inhibitors, um, and cover it up and, and leave it. Uh, you know, especially in what we call subsea tiebacks. So, um, when we're drilling a well way off, it's not on a platform, you may drill the well and then you set a subsea completion package on it and run tieback or pipe to a platform that will handle the production. Um, so you can drill quite a ways away from the platform and still extract it without having to install a surface facility over there. So it, it improves the economics. And really when you know a big operator has a big platform, it may be they have some of that production capacity for themselves, but they set aside others they sort of rent out to people who want to tie back to that. Um, but uh, anyways, you know, with that being said, it, it may not be uncommon to come back with a smaller rig or a dedicated completion rig to go complete the well in, in scenarios like that, just because depending on the operation, it could require a bunch more equipment, a bunch of other things where you'd rather just already have a rig that does that all the time. Um, so I think, you know, and, and the cost of failure is huge, right? You want everybody knowing what they're doing because at a million dollars a day, if you waste a day, that got expensive quick. No kidding. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I, I really don't have any more questions, and hopefully we gave the listeners a good rundown of, of what it's like to be a mud engineer or at least drilling offshore. Um, does it, do either one of you have any, you know, war stories or anything you'd like to close out with before we shut this thing down? <clears throat> you know, I think that uh, the, my last day on a rig, when I knew I was going in the office, my very last hitch, we were uh, – getting ready to fit a TD this well. And they kept delaying it, delaying it. You know, something would happen, you know, we'd be running casing and something unexpected would happen. So I thought I was actually going to be able to get away without having to displace the well, which is for a mud engineer out there on deep water. That's another really stressful activity. And every day it was getting closer and closer for me to go home. I was thinking, man, I'm going to be able to finish my career without having to do this last displacement. But on my last night, on my last hitch offshore, sure enough, we displaced the well. I remember sitting there at the gumbo box 
we're about, I don't know, 6,000 strokes over what we thought we needed to be to get returns. (laughs) And, uh, I was sitting there thinking, wow, when is this? I sure hope this ends soon. And then as, as soon as I was thinking that, you could, you could almost hear it like a, like a herd of elephant coming out of the hole. When that water hits that synthetic mud, it just turns into peanut butter, yeah. and it all just piles out of the, uh, the gumbo box all at once. <laughs> and uh, at that point, you can go ahead and you know, open it up and uh, go overboard with the seawater. So yeah, no that was kidding. my story. Last day on the rig most stressful job on the rigs so. man and, and now look at you man you got to ride <laughs> off into the sunset dealing with all sorts of other chaos <laughs> no that's pretty cool well uh matt you got anything if not we'll uh say our closing last words here buddy man i think you know what was in i, I just remember my first time on a deep water rig where it was like this is big time you better show up you made it <laughs> like you know i was reviewing my mud manual and trying to you know, make sure I had all my, you know, had my whole act together. <laughs> and, um, you know, I knew they would know that I was green and, and all that I'd, I'd worked on land, land for a good while, but not long enough. And, uh, so I'd studied everything and, and this was like, I mean, deep water was still like, it was, it was all the rage. It was the next frontier. I, th- I think at this point in time, and so even the, most of the mud manuals didn't even talk about, you know, deep water circulating systems or anything like that. And sure enough, you know, I'm working nights. The company man walks up. Says, what do you got for bottoms up? And I didn't like. I totally. I didn't know about the booster pump. Like I just, you know, like, oh man, I could calculate bottoms up. And I'm like calculating. And he's like, you better go check your numbers. And I was like, dang it, I don't know anything. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, anyways, it, it it's a lot less intimidating if you give it a little bit of time. But it, but it is different. There's a lot of it's it's really cool to see somebody who knows the ins and outs of everything that goes on in one of those operations. I bet. Um, but it's also one of those where when you first walk up to one, even after working on land or whatever, um, you're going to be humbled pretty quickly until until you learn a few things. So No kidding. No, that's great. Well, with that being said, all the listeners, we hope uh, that you're able to take away something. And, and of course, we could have went down the rabbit hole on several of these topics. But uh, if you have any stories or if you have any input, please hit us up at the Flowline Podcast at AESFluids.com. Or you can hit us up on LinkedIn. Matt and I are always active on there. We love to engage with our audience. So please support and leave us a five-star review. Share it, like it with all your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, take care, everybody. See ya. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.